Let's talk CMMC 2.0. There was a leak and some new information came out. So I did a live stream to bring on two experts to talk about it. This is that live stream for you podcast listeners, a bonus episode of The Business of Tech. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this live edition of The Business of Tech. I'm Dave Sobel, your host, and we're going to dive in today on the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification, or CMMC. There's been a leak, but before we get into that, I want to take a moment and set the stage. Let's remind everybody what CMMC is. It's an assessment framework and certification program that's designed to increase trust and compliance to the various standards published by the National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST. The primary purpose of CMMC is to verify that the information systems used by the Department of Defense contractors for processing, transmitting, and storing sensitive data comply with all of the information security requirements. So the goal is ensuring the appropriate protection of those controlled, unclassified information and federal contract information that's stored and processed by the partners and vendors. So let's get a history. CMMC was created in 2019 by the Department of Defense to transition from their self-attestation model for hygiene, and it was used prior to govern the defense industrial base. And DOD published an interim rule set in September of 2020 to implement the initial vision of the program. That became effective on November 30th of 2020, and thus CMMC 1.0. In March of 2021, the department initiated an internal review of the implementation, and they led that to the announcement of CMMC2 in November of 2021, with updates to the program structure and requirements designed to safeguard all of the information, enforce more standards, and ensure accountability, maintain the public trust, and perpetuate a collaborative culture of cybersecurity and cyber resilience. That's where we're at. And so they're working on CMMC2. But we've been exposed to a little bit more information now. So helping me answer my question of why do we care, I want to introduce my two experts for today. Alex Trafton is a managing director in Ancura's National Security, Trade, and Technology practice based in Irvine, California. He has over 15 years of experience in finance, risk management, and cybersecurity. Alex leads the NSTT Information Security Services function and serves as a subject matter expert in cybersecurity program design, implementation, and assessment with a focus in foreign investment control and oversight commonly known as CFIS, the Defense Industrial-Based Cybersecurity Programs and International Trade Compliance and Program Support. Alex, thanks for joining me. Wonderful. Matthew Trenier is the founder of Hunter Strategy, a cybersecurity and DevSecOps consultancy specializing in cloud, software engineering, and cyber risk management with over 15 years experience in cybersecurity, 
Automation, and National Security Systems. Matt has been recognized by the defense and intelligence agencies as a key contributor in cyber risk management and cloud engineering. He's a frequent speaker in cloud and cyber risk and has been an active member of various industry working groups supporting the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency, and the Office of the Secretary of Defense for Acquisitions and Sustainment. Great intros, and I've got two guys who know what they're talking about. So I'm going to start with a super basic thing. Guys, CMMC2 leaked. Tell me a little bit more about what happened. Sure. So this kind of comes down to how uh, the federal government goes about making rules, right? So um, CMMC is a, a, a regulation, an agency regulation from DOD. So the rule initially lived with DOD, where it was developed, <clears throat> where there was a public comment period. You know, prior to it be becoming a regulation in the federal register, uh, it has to go through OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, and, and specifically their Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, OIR. That's where that rule went. That's where those documents went. Um, their job is to do things like make sure it meets the Paperwork Reduction Act, that they have all these economists and statisticians to figure out what impact it's going to have on industry, how much time it's going to take for agency officials to implement, things like that. And what happened was, for, for reasons we don't know, uh, the, the documents that make up the CMMC, which is the assessment guide, the framework, the scoping guides, and the hashing tool, uh, were published to the OIRA website, uh, what we assume is accidentally, and was, they were left up there for something range of 24 to 36 hours before they were removed. This really gave us insight into what is going to be in the CMMC program, because from the perspective of DOD, once that rule went to OMB, went to OIRA, they were done with the rule. They were happy with its contents. They felt like they had responded to industry comment. So what we saw, most likely, is probably going to be pretty close to what's in uh, either a proposed or an interim final rule that's going to be issued uh, at, at any point, pretty much. So it's, a, it's essentially an unplanned sneak peek is what yeah, we got. Yeah, yeah. Now, just to give me, give me a little bit of a quick sense, like how, when were we expecting it? You know, since this is a little bit unplanned, is this two yeah. weeks early, a month early, a year earlier? Like, give me a little quick sense. So of that. The, the rule was sent from DOD to OMB on the 24th of July and was leaked shortly thereafter. Um, you know, I think the rule itself, if it's a proposed rule, I mean, it could be within 60 days, they open it again for public comment. And if it's a, Interim final rule that could be anytime also uh, with, with some rollout period. So, so there's some, it, it was almost immediate the leak. And um, the question is how long until there's either an official look at the, at the rule, whether for proposed for rule for comment or an interim final rule, which is, means it's going to be rolled out uh, imminently into DOD contract. So I, I think the likely scenario is there's an interim final rule. Uh, and we're looking at probably 330-ish days until like, about the average for these rules to become interim final. Um, but yeah, I mean, so so immediately leaked. <laughs> and then the question is, how, how soon will the actual, right? I mean, rule come out. I don't think the, the DOD is probably too happy that this got leaked, uh, but, but it, it, these things happen, I guess, <laughs> even to the federal government. <laughs> So and, and let's remember that the, the underlying requirements and technology have been established for a while. This is really more around the implementation and the rule language itself, not not kind of the substance of it. The, sub, the technical substance of it has been known for years. Uh, what what this really did 
was start to speak to some of the details of the implementation. What does it mean for things like cloud and service providers and, and some yeah. a, a little more of the how than the what, so to speak, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it does. So for listeners that are watching live, we will be taking questions. Go ahead and put them in the chat box. So before I move on from this, I just want to make sure that my assumption is right. I get the impression that the, that the leak is essentially a mistake. This isn't the, the, probably somebody clicked the wrong button versus something we should be thinking about from a malicious perspective. Sure. We talk so many breaches. I just want to make sure my impression of that is right. Is that a fair assessment? I've been working with the government. Yeah, I was going to say, I've been working with the government a long time. I've helped author rules. I've helped review rules. And uh, I can tell you with absolute certainty uh, that this is a mistake. Okay. <laughs> uh, these, these, these things are uh, lots of paper goes through MB. They, as Alex pointed out, Paperwork Reduction Act, budget scoring. I mean, they have a lot of vetting that they need to do to get these rules out. And uh, as we mentioned, this has been kind of in flux for a while. So somebody either confused it with another rule package that was supposed to go live, clicked the wrong button, thought, oh, this is the thing we've been waiting on forever without really reading it. Um, there's any number of reasons kind of why the mistake happened, but but it's uh, was there really there doesn't seem to be any issue between DOD and OMB that anyone would gain anything by leaking it intentionally. And, and uh, there really isn't any uh, uh, look that would seem like a malicious third actor. Did, right. It just seems <laughs> like this is what happens in big bureaucracy. Yep. Well, with, with insecurity, we just have to start from the perspective of like, was this just a legitimate human mistake or is somebody doing something malicious? So now we can move on from the leak because I don't think that's actually the interesting part. Get, give me a little bit of you guys have spent some time digging through this. You know, so what did we learn? Like what's in there? <laughs> what's in so, there that we want to know about? Yeah, I mean, from the perspective of the government, right? I mean, so there's this, the, the industry perspective of CMMC. The government has a very different perspective, right? What constitutes CMMC level one and CMMC level two have been in federal regulation and, and contract clauses for a long time, right? 800-171, this SP 800-171, which is the minimum baseline for CUI protections when it's held in non-federal information systems, has been a requirement of defense industrial base since 2017, right? This is a verification regime. So I, I think everyone knew that that was what in there, right? I mean, that's just a verification. Uh, what was new is, is what's going to be in CMMC level three for one, one right? What part of NIST 800-172 would be in there for these elevated security requirements? Because that's actually a new requirement for the defense industrial, right? 800-171, that's old news. The DOD, there's nothing new. We don't want to hear about cost of implementation because you said you've been doing it for six years. So, but, so there's this what's in level three. And I think also... Um, how, how this, in, a lot of the ambiguity around implementing these things was, you know, th these aren't contained entities that it applies to. These small companies, mid-sized companies, right, not necessarily primes, prime contractors, but small and mid-sized businesses, they have, they use a lot of cloud resources, they use managed service providers. Um, you know, how do all those people get impacted? And those things have been kind of mentioned in, in contract law previously, but I think this really goes a long way to establishing what they mean by cloud service providers, what cloud service providers will need to do, and most importantly, what their external service providers are going to need to do. And if you read these documents, external service providers are going to need the same level of certification, right, as the companies they are servicing. So that's your MSP, your MSSP, things like that. They're going to need the same level of certification if they hold your data or even security-related data, logs, things like that. 
And cloud uh, providers are going to need to meet FedNet moderate equivalent security and be able to provide shared responsibility matrices and, and system security plans showing how they do that on your behalf, right? And so that's quite an onerous revelation, in my opinion, because that's how you enforce that as the DoD with people you don't have a contract with. How do um, companies, in, in small companies, enforce this? How do they get their MSPs to do this? How do they get their cloud providers to do this? I think that's an enormous change in burden not on the contractors, but on their service providers. So I want to make sure I heard that right. So because so for those that listeners know, I'm based in the DC area. I've got tons of friends in government consulting. And oftentimes it's easy to be dismissive and say, well, that's the big companies. But mm-hmm. there's a real long chain in this. So I want to make sure, let me do out a theoretical example. And you guys get, tell me if I'm hearing this right. So a, a large, you know, a, a federal contractor uh, hire somebody, and then they, you know, they they're working with uh, a, a sub below them, so a small person that they bring in, mm-hmm. and then that person is leveraging a managed services provider just to run their network. Right, that could just right. literally just be like, so that managed services provider is also in the chain and has to be covered as part of that. Am I hearing that right? No, that's the problem. So they're not supporting the contract, so they don't sign the clause. They're not eligible to sign the contract clause, which flows down. But the government is saying, since they hold the data on your behalf, they're still subject to the certification requirement. So okay. that's the trick, right? Like, so the government's not saying you're you're part of our supply chain. They're saying like you, the, the supply chain has to make sure you're certified to use uh, your service and product, right? And I think that's where I think there's probably some good government contract lawyers circling circling uh, circling the pool here because I think that's quite up for debate about how that's enforceable. And, and that's always been the trick with this stuff is how do you enforce all of these things, right? With, and the DOD has no privity of contract with either the contractor or their contractors. And so they understand that's the risk and this is their attempt at solving it. And, and, and just to add to that, I feel like uh, they're, they're really trying to, and, and the privy of contract thing that Alex mentioned is really key here, right? Um, as a small business that started off primarily with subcontracts, you get these big contracts from large government contractors. They basically take their entire government contract, they copy paste it, they put it in your subcontract as additional terms. And as a small business, you don't really have much of a choice. You sign that contract or you don't get to participate. And so now that they're building this entire framework and model, they're saying small businesses need to assert when, uh, sorry, the prime contractor needs to assert that all of their small businesses are doing this. So while the government doesn't have privy of contract with the small business, they do with the prime and they're basically holding the prime responsible. So small businesses are going to be getting a lot of pressure from their prime contractors to assert. And small businesses, as you noted, frequently use external providers. And especially if those small businesses don't traditionally do government work, they probably aren't seeking providers that are familiar with these types of requirements that are getting ahead of this. So it is uh, creating a lot of confusion. And it is uh, also uh, very much to to Alex's point, because they don't have that, that privy of contract, it's being pushed through the primes. So that's that's where you see a lot of it. Now, there are small business primes. We have a very healthy small business community in DOD. And as Hunter grew, we became a prime contractor and, and hold about a dozen prime contracts today. So that was where we started to get familiar because, as Alex said, we see these clauses in our contracts and we read them and started to implement this a long time ago. But there's there's a lot of people that aren't going to be in that same spot. And it took us a long time to get there. 
So I'm guessing a lot of MSPs have been asking you guys, you know, well, what do I need to know and start preparing for? What do you, what do you guidance are you giving them? I mean, from a, from a, just a compliance with this rule perspective or potential, I mean, part of the problem is you're kind of having to prognosticate for them and say like, well, we have this week, here's what's currently in contracts. Here's what we kind of think is going to happen. Right. I mean, there, there is some, there is some, how do you manage those risks? Right, um, without committing to something we know we don't know is a rule yet. But I think one one thing is really making sure that if they're just an MSP, that they're able to meet the requirements of CMMC, right, from a policy level, from a system security plan level, but also that they're they're going to be able to support their customers, right, in the in their CMMC audit. So shared responsibility metrics, right, because they're doing a lot of the functions the company is attesting that they're doing will be certified to do. So how are they? How are they going to provide evidence and artifacts for that? How are, who are they going to have show up for interviews with an audit, right? Because it really is a shared responsibility. So so really helping them define that. And I think the other thing is the opportunity, right? I mean, the, there are lots of MSPs and MSSPs in the defense industrial base. Some won't be able to do this. Some may, if this is, all comes to fruition as a final rule, have to leave the market. So there is some investment of time and money in this. And is it is it worth it? Is there enough business out there? Right when when the wheat is separated from the chaff in a final rule, and and basically MSPs are kind of excluded, and 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 can contractors too because they can't meet these requirements. So have we gotten some insight into the technical requirements, like what what yeah, new stuff or stuff we need to be start planning for? I would say that that's been a, so it's new to some people. So that's the first thing we have to engage with is some MSPs have been down this path for a while. And, and I don't just mean with the NIST standards, if you have an ISO certification, if you have a SOC certification at your MSP level, a lot of that investment can be reused here. The good news is, is the government didn't reinvent the wheel by any means. And the technology, the, the technology side of this has been known for a while. And there's really nobody on the ideological spectrum that's advocating against it, right? Now we start talking about the supply chain responsibilities. What does it mean for cloud providers? How do you make these different attestations? That's where things get a little different, right? So if, for example, today you're using Salesforce, as most MSPs or many MSPs are, um, if you're going to start storing uh, some of information about government contracts or government customers in that Salesforce environment, you got to be looking towards their GovCloud implementation uh, that, that follows those controls and can provide those assertions to you upstream. Um, and that's just an example of, of one that people don't think about a lot because Salesforce is not usually, I mean, it's, it's business sensitive, but it's not usually seen as a repository of sensitive information in the traditional sense. Um, but that's a great example of one where is there a government cloud offering? Absolutely. It's much more expensive. It's going to put a big burden on small business. Um, and uh, most businesses don't even really, that's kind of one of the second or third level things that they're going to get to, depending on where they are in their journey. If they already have a SOC 2, they're probably going to look towards the NIST standards and start doing a differential to be able to say, okay, we probably got everything here, but we need to speak NIST now, not SOC. So that's, mm -hmm. that's usually an exercise that is straightforward, but time consuming. Um, and then after that, you start dealing with the notion of CUI and government contract information. And that's a whole separate data categorization and data protection category that people are used to today. And even that gets a little bit 
nuanced because I, again, I've had that. This happens all the time in performance of our contracts where we're saying, is this CUI? And so you go to the government person that gave it to you and you say, is this CUI? And eight out of 10 times, they don't know. Um, if it's marked properly, then it's obvious and we would never have asked to begin with. But when you start reading a document and you start noting that there's some sensitive information, maybe there's IP addresses in a cyber document and you're like, well, it seems like this should be probably protected. Is it? And if it's not marked, they don't know. And, and that creates a whole lot of confusion in, in how data is getting passed as well. And, and this leak doesn't really address that. That's an underlying problem with data marketing in the government in general. Um, but but it uh, now that they're putting this enforcement to people, they're going to be getting a lot more questions about. What well, one more thing that I think the other thing to consider, right? Like like the kind of CUI controlled and classified controlled and classified information that defense contractors are getting is is controlled technical information from the DoD. Most of this will be on the U.S. munitions list. I mean, it's it's ITAR and export controlled. It might also be e or might otherwise be EAR dual use commerce controlled technologies. Um, and so it's not just the CUI. I mean, they, these people may be accessing data that's export controlled. Or do they have non-U.S. persons working there? Do they use a follow the sun model? Do they route data globally? Do they encrypt it using FIPS compliant or FIPS validated encryption? Um, there's a lot to think about in terms of compliance with the broader ecosystem of requirements that CMMC is ultimately going to come and look at, right? I mean, they're looking at your, your CUI. I mean, if that's export control, that, that's part of the problem that's going to get identified in these, in these engagements. Well, and, and Alex, I just wanted to, just because export controls and trade controls are a big part of Anchorage practice also, um, True. The technology to implement is relatively similar, right? Similar encryption, similar national sovereign cloud type storage and, and type of things between CUI and ITAR. What other uh, implications do you think that people should be looking at here that are outside of just CMMC uh, when they think about how they build uh, governance programs around the information they receive? Yeah, I, I mean, I do think that's it. Is, is data sovereignty right? So, so you could have a requirement in CMMC that your cloud product that you buy from from the vendor be FedRAMP moderate. That doesn't guarantee the data stays sovereign, and it doesn't guarantee only U.S. persons access that data, which is a requirement of ITAR, right? And so, CUI problems reside in contracts with the government. If you if you make a mistake, the government can withhold payment. They can cancel your contract. They can sue you for fraud litigate under the False Claims Act. If you violate the ITAR, you can be fined by DDTC, and if you do it knowingly, you can end up in jail. This, this downstream F-35 issue, uh, where these, these Chinese parts wound up in the F-35, the people ultimately responsible for that are being prosecuted by the DOJ. They're not being fined. So the, the, it's a different problem set, um, and I think it helps to kind of look at the data holistically. In, in the data we receive from our government customers, what is it? Is it PII? Is it is it is it technical drawings that are ITAR? Is it a jet engine? Is it a missile fin? Like, what are we getting, and what is it subject to, and how do we build that in holistically? If you kind of look at these things in a whack-a-mole approach, well, here's CMMC, you know, we've got GDPR over here, and we we, we do a little of you know ITAR there. I, mean, I think you wind up those those things don't get harmonized, and you end up with risks across all of them because you're not kind of holistically addressing the problem of. of what is your data and to what regulations and standards is the subject? 
Now I'm gonna gonna ask because one of the things that I always sort of lean into on the show is, is I love complex problems because I always say the more complexity there are, the more opportunity there is, and thus cha-ching, we can all make some money at this. But this immediately um, has is throwing up a lot of red flags for my very commercially view mm -hmm. view of the world because I'm looking at this and any time that I hear that there may actually be like you know. I don't know, jail time and lawyers at the other end of, of this. Like I, I immediately throw up and go, well, maybe that's another level of complexity. How, what kind of guidance are you giving to small providers to give some sense of the risk profile that they need sure. to be comfortable with? Yeah. I mean, I mean, look, I think ultimately the, the, if you're operating in good faith, the risk is always lower, right? Like when you try to, when you try to do things in a way that's intentionally deceptive or you try to avoid regulation, that's where problems are, right? If you're operating in good faith, you work hard to understand your requirements and you're open with regulators and you're open with customers about how you're doing it. I think it's generally fine. Also, like to Matt's point, there's a lot of ambiguity. This is one piece of advice we're giving, right? Is, is engage with counsel and understand, you know, is it CUI, right? Anyone could put a CUI label on something, but it doesn't make it that. I think one of the issues is CUI has been really greatly overinterpreted in the defense industrial. It's been overshared by the DOD and by prime contractors, and they deal with it with contract clause inclusion. Like Matt said, just copy and paste my contract into your contract. This is what you have to do. But a lot of these customers may not actually have to do that. And there's a strong argument to be made that there's, unless the government gives it to you, it might not be CUI. And so, again, that's an ambiguity, but really helping them understand and limiting right, their, their exposure by saying, where is this data really? Are you really doing a classification of your data that's honest and in good faith with good advice, right? Because you don't, may not need your whole business to be certified. You may not even touch CUI. You may, you may be able to tell your customers and MSP, well, we don't touch your data that way. It's encrypted when it gets to us. You hold the encryption keys. We don't need to do that, right? Those are things we really try to do when we're doing this. And to your point, Cha-ching, what I'm trying to do actually is reduce the cost. I can go in and say, look, you don't need to do all this. Here are the few things you actually do need, right? That's how we're really giving value to clients. I think that's one of the other things we're doing is really to push back on this, this assumption, this panic assumption that everything's in scope, everything is CUI, everything's a risk. That's, that's also not true. Now, let me dig into that a little bit because when I, you know, so, so CUI, reminder for those that may not know, is that controlled unclassified information, which is kind of, you kind of have, as, as again, a layman might have to laugh and go, well, wait a second, isn't that? Wouldn't there be some kind of official status for that? How, mm -hmm. particularly, you know, as I think about this, both Matt and, and Alex, I want to ask you both from like sort of the policy, but also from the technical perspective, how dissimilar or similar is the idea of that from a regular public, you know, the, the private information that we're thinking about from a, from a corporate perspective or people's personal information that they'd be regulating in a, a sense? How, how different is that? Well, I think you're hitting on the difference between security and data governance, right? A lot of MSPs are great at security. Obviously, MSSPs specialize in security, but a lot of them really don't have data governance as a service available to their customers because of that exact question. Because for some people, dealing with PII is important, but if the government gives me a bunch of PII as a contractor, that now becomes CUI. So in addition to having the regular laws around privacy protection that we're all bound by with sharing people's personal information we take under a privacy agreement, because it's been furnished by the government, I have all of these other layers of complexity, um, some of which include in the case of PII fines, in the case of uh, arms, protect, uh, uh, munitions protected information, potential jail time. 
So it's it's really about how the data was created, how the data is stored, what the data contains. I talked before about how people don't know if you know they get something that's unmarked and they think it maybe should be CUI. Alex made a really good point. Uh, a lot of times it's actually that something was overmarked CUI and your prime doesn't know what it is or isn't. So they figure, well, I'm just going to mark it this way because that protects me. Um, and then now that pushes the burden down to you, the small business, to figure out whether or not this needs to be protected. And if so, how do I handle it? And so it's really understanding that whole chain of custody of data, the content of data, and then actually kind of reading, you know, boning up on your NARA, so to speak, and actually reading about the different CUI categories so you can understand when you may or may not be seeing it and, and compare it to how you got it. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point because if you read the, back to the leak, right? right yeah. But if you read what's in, in, in when, when they say an external service provider, for instance, is subject to these requirements, you know, that it has the data, right? The CUI, the logs, information like that, have to reside on, on the MSP's network and system, right? Can't, how can you provide services in a way where maybe you don't take in their data? Right. And maybe you the logs live in their systems and you can view the logs. Right. Right. But they necessarily live in your system. Right. So that's the other thing is, is understanding all of this and saying, once we understand what CUI is like, I don't want that in my environment. I can I can I build a, a product or a solution that solves for that where it leaves me out of scope a little bit. Right. And so that's the thing is we really want to understand what's the final disposition of the rule. So we can start to tell people, like, keep some of this stuff at arm's length. Right. Um, and I think Matt makes a great point. He deals with, with CUI all the time in his contracts. And to his point, a lot of times people don't know. So sometimes, you know, it's up to you. And that's really a definition of CUI. The person who decides if it's CUI and decides if it needs protection is the authorized holder. So if someone sends you CUI from the government, you're an authorized holder and you have to deal with it, right? And so that's, that's a key point is that you need to exercise some of that agency and limiting scope and, and finding ways to solve this problem in a way that, right, you operate in good faith, right? You, you, you limit your costs, but you also protect the data. Now, as guys who spend a time thinking about this all the time, right? You've you've obviously been tracking this all the time, and you knew it was coming, but you just got you know Christmas came early, and Santa oh. delivered it a little early. Was there was there a surprise or something in there that you weren't expecting to see that that kind of that you wanted to focus on? I'm <laughs> I would say it's 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 the the ESP specificity, which a lot of people have been asking about, to be fair. So I it was a very open question of, of how we how you would handle having an external service provider. I thought it was interesting that they just applied the CMMC program to the external service providers. There's been a lot of push in uh, the the overall regulatory uh, GRC space. Um, among people that support ISO and, and other frameworks pushing for reciprocity because a lot of these different uh, regulatory frameworks or, or, sorry, security frameworks are very similar. Um, and so I think there was a lot of hope that if an MSP had already invested in uh, SOC 2 or in ISO that they could use those instead. They really did not seem to allow for that. They said it needs to be equivalent to FedRAMP moderate if you're a cloud services provider and that you actually need to be certified under CMMC as an ESP. And, and I feel like that was a, a, a pretty uh, a, a line in the sand a little further to the right than I expected them to come out. 
um, for, for me anyway. Alex, I'm, I'm curious what you think. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I knew this was going to happen. And and the reason is when the government... You it, right, Alex? You're not telling us. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> What's that? I was just, I didn't say, you said you knew it was going to happen, so I was saying you leaked it, but I was joking. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I predicted, rather. I mean, when, when this initially... When the first CUI protection requirements came out, and, and by the way, there is a federal acquisition regulation rule that's coming, that, that there are going to be CUI protection requirements for every federal agency, right? So you're, if you're at the interior, you're a subcontractor of the Department of Interior, and you make park ranger hats, and you have PII for the park rangers, you now have CUI. I mean, it, and, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but that's the, the, where this is headed. But the, the DOD was the first to implement this. And what they said was, when everyone complained, they said, you know, this is government data. The taxpayers trust us to protect it. That doesn't. That obligation doesn't go away when we share it with our partners, right? And so when they share it with the partners, the partners are required to protect it, and they defined in rules how that had to happen. So as soon as they turn around and share it with a cloud provider or ESP, those same that same logic, the dispositive issue of who of the responsibility to protect the data continues with the data. The trick was always going to be how is it enforced, right? And the only way it's enforced is in contract. Right. And, and the CMMC ultimately is enforcing the contract requirement. And so that's the, that I knew these were going to la land in the laps of cloud providers and managed service providers because of the initial logic that DOD used, it, which is, uh, from a legal perspective, a sound logic. Just because I give it to you doesn't mean it doesn't require protection anymore. Now that you said something that's sort of interesting is, is is because if I think a lot about what we're seeing with the EOs coming out of the Biden administration, it's clear they're leading they're leaning into managing all of our uh, of this, and that their thinking is that by leaning on the entire stack of government buying, we will we will push regulation out as far as we possibly can to to enforce this kind of stuff and, you, and your statement about like the park rangers like that that's the this is the preview defense is the first mm -hmm. round but your example of like the hat manufacturer for the park police is a great one because they're probably serviced by they're probably not a massive business and they yep. are serviced by yet another small msp give me a little bit of a sense of how consistent the rule structure is across the entire Fed, yep. not just DOD, but yep. applying this outside to all organizations. So, in the initial federal, in the initial uh, rule that lives in 32 CFR 2002, which was issued by NARA pursuant to the executive order on CUI by Obama, it established the minimum requirements for federal agencies to protect CUI, and it established the minimum requirements for non-federal entities when the agencies share data. And they said the minimum standard anywhere, anytime you share CUI, is NIST SB 800-171. They said you can, that's the ground floor, right? The, that rule applies to the agency. The agency can never have a contractor not be subject to that standard if they share CUI. Now, they have to ensure it through contract law, right? Because there's no other regulatory authority over that data. But that's the minimum standard. And that's what people, I think, are, are worried about is because this 10-year saga, right, in the DOD, right, which has been painful, has been awful, right, has been laid bare the failure to protect our defense industrial base, right? All of that is coming to the other agencies near you, right? And, and so at the minimum, they're going to get 800-171 as a baseline requirement because that's the, the agency is bound by 
the, the, the regulation that they have to do that. And, and DHS just issued a DUI rule uh, in, in, I think in July also. And they punted. They said, we're only going to do this for cloud providers. They need to get fed rent monitoring. We're punting to the FAR rule that applies to all agencies. We don't want to preempt the FAR council. So we're going to wait to see what they say. So the other agencies are going, we're not doing the DOD thing. We don't, we don't want to deal with this mess, right? So we'll deal with the people who run the cloud on our behalf. And we'll let the FAR deal with this as a general acquisition rule for all agencies, right? And so once that happens, I don't see how it could be any less than what the DOD is currently issuing and in verifying through CMMC. The question will be, how is it verified? How is it implemented contract law? And how is it verified? Is there an audit? Is there an attestation? That's the question. But it is coming to an agency near you. Well, and, and to take that up a level, right? Not CMMC is coming to an agency near you, although that might be the inevitable thing that they have to do. The FAR clauses and the requirements for what CMMC is dictating. And, and that's just a distinction I want to make sure is really clear because, as Alex said, 800-171 has been the law of the land for a while now. Um, it's been the law of the land uh, for agencies to put forth in their contracts when they're furnishing this type of information. Have all agencies done that in all contracts where they furnish that information? They have not. Um, DOD certainly has the biggest problem and has the most partners and has probably, other than the intelligence community, the largest amount of information to protect. So they've been really leading the charge because they have the biggest exposure. Um, and in a lot of ways, I think other agencies are, uh, uh, certain agencies are looking to DOD to kind of get a mature model in place that I think that they can jump onto. Um, others are trying to chart their own path. But nobody, again, nobody is questioning the standard of 800-171. That's the guidepost for everybody. All of these things, CMMC or whatever any other agency does, is how they're verifying and how they're building a model around uh, mm -hmm. making sure that you're doing 800-171 and not just signing a contract saying that you're doing 800-171, because that's kind of where we've been for a few years. Now, NIST is taking another look at their entire framework, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the other bit. So how, how does this relate to what NIST is doing for their next gen of, of, the, of the cybersecurity standards? So there's just always been this confusion between NIST and, and the DOD when it came to CMMC. Because when they issued CMMC rules, everyone would complain that NIST was too hard. They go, we don't, we don't work at NIST. That's common. Right, we we are required to implement 800-171. They define the contract, and then people would come to NIST when they were updating uh, 800-171. Say, oh, the CMMC program is too hard. They go, whoa, we just make the standards. That program is with DoD, right? So the the balkanization and kind of the Byzantine nature of some of these agency processes were very confusing. What is true is that the current DFAR 7012 contract, which is the center of gravity for all this, right, that implements 800-171. 71 contract law requires that at the, whatever NIST 800-171 version revision is in effect at the time of solicitation is the one that's required, right? So NIST is in the process of updating NIST 800-171 from revision two to revision three. We've seen an initial public draft. Um, they expect that to be released in Q1 of 2024, right? So um, there is a substantial increase in requirements uh, in that document. They built in a little more flexibility, right? Assuming it, it kind of looks like the initial public draft. So the big question is, if CMMC verifies 800-171 and they update 800-171, well, 
Well, now they've got to go back and change all the CMMC guidance, right? Because it's inclusive of 800-171. They've built an entire ecosystem of third-party providers who do auditing called the Cyber AB. So that's an independent body that certifies and manages the certification process on behalf of the right? Their entire structure is built around revision two, right? So as, they up, so as NIST goes and ups the updates from revision two to revision three of 800-171, CMMC is still using 800-171 revision two, Right, so this is part of the issue that that is challenging to navigate. It's like, well, which draft do I look at? Like, which, like, how do I align to this? When do I plan for this? How, how, when do I take on capital expenditure to do this? What, what's the smart thing to do? And I think it is challenging, and I think that uh, you know we'll have probably revision three of eight hundred one seventy one before the CMMC rule, um, and and it'll be an increase in requirements um, from. You know, just based on the way NIST controls work, it's a separate, probably podcast on that. But um, that's that's the strategy from NIST. And Ron Ross from NIST said, "Yeah, we're not, no delay. We're working straight through. Um, We've taken the comments. We're responding to comments. You'll have your final draft in in the beginning of the year." So, I mean, there's that to look forward to. So there could be a situation where you get a contract requirement that means or states that you have to implement in NIST 800-171. Revision three, because it's now in effect at the time of your solicitation, but CMMC rule is coming out and it's not yet set up to even certify you against that standard. So again, a little more, <laughs> a little more needless confusion in, in this process. I was going to say, oh, go ahead, man. Well, I was going to say, I think that they're probably, because I think you're right, Alex, they're going to get the 171 rules out before uh, uh, the CMMC rule gets final. We'll probably end up with a CMMC rule that has uh, Rev3 in it. But there's going to be this gap period that's going to exist for basically forever um, where uh, there we're going to be uh, people are going to be certified ahead of where the standard is. And the standard is going to change and they're going to need to research. Um, and that's already happening with FIPS, right? Recently, we had a contract that required FIPS 140-3 in it, even though there's no regulatory body or standard that's moved to 140-3 yet. I think it was a typo, but these are the types of things that happen when you start having standards moving ahead of certification processes. And then you get the complexity of, okay, DOD is going to follow CMMC. What if another agency just follows the latest uh, 171 provision? So you're going to have some contracts that are going to have one requirement, other contracts that are going to have the old requirement. So these are things that we're going to have to sort out as things get a little bit more uh, uh, in tune. So give me a little bit of a prediction then. Where, where do you guys think, you know, and, and knowing, by the way, I always say the crystal balls are broken and they have, they're gray and hazy. But at the same time, you guys have been spending a lot of time doing this. How do you think this is going to go? Do you think this is going to drive some of the the smaller players out of the market is it going to is it just going to make a bring a bunch of clarity and let people wash in how do you think this is going to fall out for those that are serving this ecosystem i mean matt that's you you are serving the ecosystem i i, I, I there's no consequence to my prediction <laughs> so i'll say for us there are some people that that made this we were one of the people that made this investment early um, we've been following the standards for a while. We kind of saw the writing here and, and we did that. There are lots of other companies that did that as well. Um, so I think that you're going to see some players uh, that have made these investments uh, grow in this space because sadly, uh, 
people that are using uh, 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 external service providers that kind of only casually support some government contract, some, some government contract entities, they're not going to want to make the investment. They're not going to see the value. And so if they don't see the value and they don't want to make the investment, then they're going to probably lose those customers that require that investment. So I think you're going to see a little bit of a shift. But those those smaller players that focus in this market are, are probably just going to go through the process like everybody else has. And the ones that have focused on it for a while uh, probably already have and, and they're ready. So that's that's certainly where we feel at Hunter. And I would say I think there's plenty of other people in the space that are that are ready for, for this new business. It's also going to bring a lot of new customers to this market. Because there's a lot of people that are doing niche things like creating uniform for park service members that never really saw that as a, uh, a requirement that are going to start getting swept into this, that are going to start coming into the more traditional government contract space. Gotcha. Yep. Well, yeah, Matt, I that's right. I think if we, I think it is an enormous opportunity for cloud service providers and nano service providers who can do not only do it themselves, but help their customers. Right. I mean, the customers that are struggling, if you're an MSP and you and you think you have the horsepower to do this, please do it from a national security perspective. The MSPs are the weak spot in the defense industrial base. We need strong MSPs. We need good MSPs. If you think you have the technical the organizational capabilities to help defense contractors do it, because there's going to be a lot of opportunity. Well, I love ending on an opportunity moment because that's that's the focus. I'm going to ask each of you, how can people get in touch if they're interested in learning more? Alex, what's a, what's a great way to do that? So you can um, go into the Anchor website and find our aerospace and defense practice. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm always happy to talk to people, even if it's just a free sanity check. Look, I'm, you know, we 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 are my team. We're committed to to enhancing national security in the United States, and of course, making a living while we're doing it. But we're happy to help. So please reach out, um, alex.trafton at ancura.com. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can reach out to ancura.com and find our aerospace and defense practice there. Um, and you can reach me in any of those places. Awesome. Matt, how can people get in touch? Same with me. I'm uh, not the anchor site. Go to the Hunter Strategy site, hunterstrategy.net. I'm just Matt at hunterstrategy.net. Also uh, very available on LinkedIn. Love when people ask questions about this. Love when I can uh, bring some of my knowledge that I've been kind of uh, kicking around for a long time and, and help somebody else get some use out of it. So really uh, I hope that you do reach out to some of these questions because uh, the more people that ask them, maybe we'll be able to come to some consensus on the answers. Well, the whole goal here is to make everybody a little bit more secure, and I think that's what that's what the what's happening with the uh, the leverage that the government's doing with their own spending. Partner Hero is an outsourcing company that goes beyond industry norms to prioritize employee empowerment, career growth, and quality performance. They pay above market salaries and have a management team that includes individuals from the startup world, making them more than just a service provider. They're also a thought partner for startups. With flexible terms to let you scale quickly and offices around the world for global coverage, you get a thought partner for your business with quality assurance baked into every program. You know I believe in outsourcing. It's what IT services is all about. If you're ready to bring in outside customer support help for your startup that feels like it's part of your existing team, check out Partner Hero. Head on over to partnerhero.com slash business of tech to book a free consultation with their solutions team. Mention you heard about Partner Hero from Business of Tech and they'll waive the setup fee. 
The Business of Tech is written and produced by me, Dave Sobel, under ethics guidelines posted at businessof.tech. Like the content? Support the show at patreon.com slash mspradio or buy our Why Do We Care merch at businessof.tech. If you want to reach our listeners, visit mspradio.com slash engage. Part of the MSP Radio Network.